0: You're listening to the CyberWire network, powered by N2K. I absolutely do think that if you attempted to ban ransom payments, there are certain circumstances where organizations will just say we have to do uh, pay the ransom anyway because we need access back to our data.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben shares the story of a judge allowing a lawsuit against Apple alleging privacy violations in its use of Siri. I've got the details on trade groups lobbying for streamlined breach reporting standards, and later in the show, my conversation with Mark Lance from GuidePoint Security. We're going to be discussing the FBI's recent advice not to ban ransom payments. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. All right, Ben, uh, before we jump into our stories, so we got a nice bit of uh, follow-up from one of our listeners. Uh, A gentleman named Kevin wrote in, and he said, "Uh, Dear Dave and Ben, reviewing the Capital One court case and reading a report from the National Law Review, he says, yes, I have no life, the issue of breaches and IR reports being discoverable came up. Uh, Kevin asks, besides hiring your law firm to handle IR hiring, costly, you know how attorneys bill, Using a company you've never used before, which takes longer to get up to speed, or writing a totally different S.O.W. for a company you use, costly attorney fees, what are other ways a company or small business could keep their security gaps out of courts? What do you think here, Ben?
2: Great question. Uh, he later says uh, in his note to us, don't embarrass me with your answer. So I cannot I cannot guarantee against that, Kevin. Uh, right. <laughs> I apologize.
1: Kevin, it's a terrible question. You should be ashamed of yourself for even sending it in.
2: Exactly. <laughs> uh, the, the key word here is standards. Uh-huh. Um, so you are often judged as a company in relation to your peers. Uh, because when we're talking about data breaches, you know, that ends up being a, a tort case. And in a court of law, you know, the courts will look at what a reasonable company similarly situated would have done to protect its networks or devices. Hmm. Um, so industry standards and customs are going to be incredibly protective uh, in terms of lowering your legal liability. Hmm. Uh, so for a given uh, company or organization, Going to that NIST uh, website, reviewing the security standards for your type of business. Um, You know, if you're a manufacturer, they have uh, a framework for manufacturing. If you, you know, are a government institution, um, there's there's a NIST for that, if you will. Right, right. Uh, That's going to be the best evidence you have in court that, um, you know, you are not acting negligently. You are doing uh, the best that you can to adhere to industry standards and to uh, protect your own network. Hmm. So that's what I would say. Yeah. That may not, you know, eventually prevent you from having to hire a bunch of lawyers. Right. Um, and yes, they are expensive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's a, a good initial step any company can take mm-hmm. uh, to try and limit their liability.
1: Maybe reach out to uh, trade groups, those sorts of things that, that handle your your industry, see what sort of— guidance they have as well?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Trade organizations are a great resource.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Kevin for uh, sending in that question. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to discuss on the air, you can email us at caveat at the cyberwire.com.
2: All right, Ben, let's uh, dig into some stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us? So this is a, a story about a lawsuit against Siri. Poor Siri, I don't know how you would serve her with a lawsuit. <laughs> um, she uh, perhaps only exists uh, in our in our heads and in our minds. Right. Uh, the article comes from a uh, Washington Post piece on their technology page by Rachel Lerman, um, and uh, it's about a, a judge, a federal judge in California ruled that Apple has to continue fighting a lawsuit brought by users in federal court alleging privacy violations on behalf uh, or resulting from Apple's use of their personal voice assistant, Mm -hmm. which is Siri. Mm -hmm. The allegation is that Siri uh, has improperly recorded voice conversations. Mm -hmm. I'll note that the judge here is an individual named Jeffrey White. Uh, I know him because he was the district court judge on a long-running electronic surveillance case that was actually finally resolved in the past several months, but it had been going on since 2008, which is all to say that uh, Judge White has experience with with these types of issues. So this decision was largely on procedural grounds The judge threw out the allegation of economic harm, so there wasn't enough merit for that to go forward. Hmm. Um, But they allowed the plaintiffs to form a class for a class action lawsuit, which is a a key step for any group of plaintiffs. Uh, And they allowed the uh, case to move forward on the merits. And the merits are that Siri turns on unprompted and records conversations that it shouldn't have, therefore passing that data to third parties, which would violate a variety of federal laws and user privacy. Hmm. There are similar suits that we've seen against other companies. It's not just Apple. Pick your personal assistant of choice.
1: Right. Uh, the, I, I, the lady in the
2: tube. Yeah, exactly. I, I have Siri and Alexa. Uh, myself, are, they're two of my best friends. Yeah. So the idea here is the Siri is only supposed to hear your wake word, and then the two or three words you say before your wake word, and then everything you say after your wake word. So they're listening for you to say Siri. Right. Uh, people have different voices, And, you know, sometimes you could be saying another word that sounds like the wake word. Mm -hmm. uh, And that might be picked up and shared with uh, third parties. I think from the company's perspective and the reason why I I really doubt that this legislation is going to succeed on the merits is not only is this inadvertent collection exceedingly rare, but even rarer is this collection reviewed manually. And it's not exactly clear whether, um, you know, if this mistaken collection occurs, it either violates it. Uh, it almost certainly does not violate the terms of service. Mm. I'm not sure if it's going to violate a uh, federal statute. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I am not. I'm kind of bearish on whether the plaintiffs are going to succeed in this case. But it's certainly interesting. I mean, we now have. Several lawsuits making the same allegation that these personal assistants are doing more than just collecting the few words you say around around your wake word.
1: Yeah, I, I, this, this troubles me, um, maybe troubles, annoys me is probably a better word mm-hmm. for it because we've been fighting the good fight of trying to reassure people and uh, convince people that – these devices are not constantly listening to you to sell you ads. Right. right? That has been debunked, thoroughly debunked. That there's, They're not doing that. They don't need to do that. There are so many other ways that they can figure out the things that you're interested in that they don't need to take the processing power, the bandwidth, and all that stuff to be constantly li- listening to you. I understand it is a compelling illusion. It sure does seem like they're doing that sometimes, but... There's always a good explanation for how it's happening otherwise. And I think that gets conflated with what this lawsuit is actually about. And I want to just try to make sure that we differentiate that. Am I correct that these folks are saying that sometimes these recordings, uh, for for quality control purposes? uh, (laughs) You put on your nice little customer service (laughs) voice there. Right. They get sent to actual real live human beings. Right. Who uh listen to them and establish what, what if they're good or you know whatever they they do whatever they need to do to to try to make the technology better right, and the problem that with that is let's say uh I don't know, I'm in the throes of passion with my wife or my you know girlfriend or whoever whoever I am, right, so and what? I accidentally say a word that sounds like Siri, and now some strangers listening to that, who knows where <laughs> right. And it gets posted to the you know the the Slack channel of funny worst things adult we movie <laughs> ever, <laughs> right? yeah. Exactly, exactly. But uh, so I, I'm being a little you know I, I'm exaggerating here. But is, that is the the concern that people
2: are suing for. Yes, it, that is the concern. Um, you know what Apple will say is a you can opt out. You don't have to use uh, this personal assistant. Right. Um, I think. Plenty of us survived before you know. Syria was instructed to play our, our favorite album. Or I'm not
1: going back, Ben. I'm I not know. going back.
2: I know. So You know. So that's a, that's a huge part of it. It's right. not like right. you need a personal assistant to engage in everyday work and you know family life, which mm-hmm. I, makes a difference in the court of law. Um, we've hmm. seen it in other cases where you know judges are stricter on functions you know, things like cell site location information where it's impossible not to share that if you want to be a living human being. I see. Your cell phone is going to ping off the cell phone towers. Right. Um, But yeah, you don't have to use uh, Siri or Alexa as personal assistants. Mm -hmm. Apple also says they're not selling the recordings. Um, The recordings themselves aren't associated with an identifiable individual. Right. Uh, And they're constantly working on the problem. I mean, they are trying to... Like any good tech company does, um you know, go through text testing to make sure that there aren't as many inadvertent triggers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these other companies, Google, uh, as part of this article, says that they don't re- retain as a matter of course audio recordings. You know, I, I think I understand what the fear is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the fear is that, private interactions are going to be inadvertently recorded um, and that that information is going to be improperly shared with third parties. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, and
1: we, we saw, remember there was a case where there was a murder? Yes. Like somebody in, was somewhere it in the a deep hot south. tub or yep, something? in a hot and, tub where yeah. they
2: ca- caught a confession because it came just before the wake word was invoked. Right, yeah. right. So, I mean, that's a legit privacy concern. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know if there's much strength in a civil class action uh, suit. I mean, Mm. for one, they tossed out this claim of economic harm. Without having read the details of the complaint, I just don't know if they're going to be able to allege sufficient harm, harm traceable to the conduct of these companies to allow them relief in the judicial system. Mm. Um, So I'm skeptical of that. And I also think that And maybe I'm being too easy on these companies. I don't think this is an issue of the companies being glib or being, um, you know, negligent in protecting privacy. I I think some of this really is inadvertent. Uh, Now, you can be held legally liable for inadvertent things. Mm -hmm. um, But it's going to be less likely if they are, uh, you know, complying with uh, industry standards and and doing all of that. So, Hmm. yeah, I'm not— optimistic on behalf of these plaintiffs, but I've been known to be wrong before. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, we will have a link to that uh, Washington Post story in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from the Wall Street Journal, uh, a story by James Rundle, uh, and it's titled Industry Groups Urge Lawmakers to Streamline Cyber Breach Reporting Rules. Uh, and, and what this comes down to is uh, you've got some uh, lobbying groups, uh, in this case, in this story, they're talking about uh, an organization called the Bank Policy Institute, which is a lobby group for large banks. And they're making the point that there are so many uh, breach reporting requirements across states and federal uh, that there's going to be more and more of them. Uh, this story points out there's a um, a woman by the name of Heather Hogsett, who's the uh, senior vice president at the Bank Policy Institute, Uh, She makes the point that a financial company could be subject to notification rules from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the FDIC, uh, the New York State Department of Financial Services, the Treasury Department, uh, and the EU's General Data Protection Regulation Organizations as well. They say the uh, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is preparing a proposal on on breach reports. So it sounds like industry is kind of saying, hey – enough is enough here. Is there a way that we can maybe centralize this and have one organization be a clearinghouse for these sort of notifications that then get disseminated to all the other organizations? What do you make of this, Ben?
2: Yeah, I think this is a completely reasonable request on the part of these uh, uh, business lobbying groups and organizations. I mean, you can imagine how difficult it is to comply with 50 separate data breach notification laws if you're doing business in, in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the lack of clarity on, um, you know, mandatory reporting. Do you have to report for an attempted break-in or do you only have to report if your system was successfully compromised uh, and data uh, had been breached? Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of key debating points there. I think in a perfect world, we would have the federal government come up with a uh, streamlined process um, that would preempt state laws on data breach notification. Just because I think this is an area where the federal government, because this involves interstate commerce, not to get a little too constitutionally on you, um, I, I think this is a, a, an area uh, over which the federal government should have some control. Um, it would make compliance much easier uh, for companies. that would only have to follow one set of rules. And Congress could draft a law in such a way where they explicitly Preempt uh, state data breach notification laws. Mm-hmm. The issue with that is, I don't know if you've seen our Congress recently. <laughs> Always, it's a
1: well-oiled machine. Yeah,
2: <laughs> they sometimes get down to the lowest common denominator, right. where the regulations are watered down through the sausage-making process. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, so the consumer protection for data breach data breaches would be significantly lessened than what you get in in many states, including here in Maryland. Right. Um, so the good people of
1: California may have a different idea than the. I don't know, the true patriots of Texas.
2: Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There are true patriots in California too, Dave. <laughs> just throwing that out there. <laughs> of course there are. Of course um, there are. Yeah, and then the other issue <laughs> is uh, how much companies should be obligated to report. Companies are going to face a, a series of cyber threats. Not all of them are, are going to be successful attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, sensitive data isn't going to be revealed uh, after every single uh, attempt at either cyber espionage or cyber crimes or or a ransomware attack or whatever uh, they're not always going to be successful you know it would be very burdensome on on companies to have to engage in that level of granular reporting you know so and so in accounting got a phishing email today do i have to report that to sisa mhm could that, you overwhelm a system like that there's you know right exactly yeah, yeah. The counterargument to that, and this was made by a Democratic Congressman James Langevin of Rhode Island, uh, is that in order to get a, a proper picture of the full, f- you know, threat landscape, it's better to have more information than it is to have less information, mm. and that might also be an argument for one of the benefits of fifty different state. Uh, Data breach notification laws is you probably do end up collecting more data than you otherwise would, and that data can be useful for conducting broader threat assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I still think for the sake of giving these businesses some level of certainty uh, and setting a you know what would hopefully be a robust floor for consumer protection after uh, data breaches. I think it, it it would be advisable, in my uh, opinion, for for Congress to do something about this.
1: Yeah, this article points out that uh, the Senate has a a proposed bill that would require, for example, federal contractors and uh, government agencies and critical infrastructure operators to notify within twenty four hours of an incident being detected. Uh, House draft bill of a, you know the same same bill I I assume gives them seventy two hours. I think that's an interesting point, you know how how long is too long and how short is too short? Where, you know you you have to have some amount of time to to figure out or to try to figure out what's going on here. And I suppose you could have the nuance of it's just, if the clock starts ticking, right? And you are able to notify whoever you need to notify, something's happened. We're not sure, right. What's happened, But we're just letting you know. Something's happened. Stay tuned. Right. Because there's a lot more coming, but, you know, something's happened and we're not sure what it is.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, any way that you can, and this is probably something that's going to be uh, decided granularly at, at, at like the subcommittee level, mm. but there has to be some number there where you determine uh, what that what that length of time is. Right. Um so you know it's I think it's better to have one clear set standard you know it might take the federal government a long time to develop what that standard is, but at least you'd only have to comply with one than fifty separate standards
1: right right yeah i I, I hear people uh compare this to uh you know the airline industry and uh you know that that you have when there's a, a, a an airplane crash for example or or any kind of incident with an aircraft you know there's a government agency that investigates that yeah. and that is their job and that's what they do you know do we need something similar for cyber breaches i think it's an interesting comparison and i suppose you know some in some ways they're very similar but in other ways probably very different
2: yeah although i will say they are both um you know they, they are both modes that go across borders in, mm. in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that are not confined to individual states. Air travel, you know, unless you're flying within the state of California, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're generally flying to another state. Yeah. Uh, With cyber transactions, it's rarely something that's contained within an individual state, which is why I think it's ripe for some type of federal regulation.
1: Yeah, that's no, a good point. All right, well, we will have a link to that story from The Wall Street Journal in our show notes. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. all using the market leading sims edr's firewalls and wafs they use every day cyberbit is offering cyberwire listeners a free live fire exercise sign up your team now at cyberbit.com/cyberwire I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Lance. He is from GuidePoint Security. And uh, we're discussing the FBI's recent advice not to ban ransomware payments. Here's my conversation with Mark Lance.
0: You know, I think over time, kind of there was a, a stigma associated with paying ransom. And I mean, even you can tell by, you know, looking at the threat actors, they used to have what were called name and shame sites. And they do have name and shame sites. And, you know, at this point, I don't think there's as much shame involved With being impacted or affected by ransomware, I think it's, you know, seems to be a more common trend, and you know, even organizations in the Fortune 50 are being impacted by this. And so nowadays, when you are hit with ransomware, I don't think it's as much of a a black eye. It's more of a a commonality between different organizations now that they've had to to deal with it, and and that's unfortunate, of course, but uh, it's just kind of kind of the state of state of the things as as they are now.
1: When you're brought in to help negotiate uh with some of these operators, can you give us some insights what that process is like?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I think a good starting point is just talking about kind of the trend of ransomware. Um you know, obviously it started out very opportunistic, um then transitioned over to organizations more targeted threats. Initially, it was very much about operational impacts and then eventually transitioned into, like you had mentioned, you know, over that past 18 plus months, this additional piece of extortion. And I think because now you're not just talking about operational impacts, you are talking about theft of data and organizations that are trying to either prevent the recognition of their name being out there that they were impacted or the loss of sensitive data intellectual property or whatever was stolen with their environment i think we are seeing more and more instances where these threat or sorry these uh, organizations are potentially interested in in paying threat actors so i think again there are multiple reasons and motivations why somebody would have interest and brokering a conversation with the threat actor and potentially negotiating a ransom. And the way that that typically starts is, you know, the organization at first needs to make an, a make a determination, do we want to make contact with the threat actor? Do we want to understand what the ransom wa- amount is because we do have potential interest. And that could be, you know, interest again because they're completely operationally impacted. They don't have access to backups, they can't recover sensitive data or systems that they need access to or even instances where potentially paying the ransom and getting access to a decryption tool might be quicker than getting access to their offline backups and restoring from those. Other considerations might be that, you know, they don't want to be publicly named and shamed or put on the uh, the threat actor site. They don't want to have any data released um, due to the sensitivity of the data, just, you know, due to the fact that they don't want that out there and recognized. so kind of multiple considerations there. And then, Basically, the customer needs to make a determination that they do, in fact, want to reach out to this threat actor and understand what the ransom amount is, understand, you know, how much is being requested and why. And there are certain benefits to do that, uh, doing that. A lot of customers have interest in doing that, even if they're not necessarily interested in paying the ransom because they might get an idea of what the threat actor is saying they stole and confirmation on certain data that they believe about the incident while an investigation is ongoing from the incident response service provider. So, you know, with the different threat actors, there are kind of different methods for you to reach out to them based on, you know, what their kind of standard operating procedures are. Some of them have you send an email. Um, Others have a, you know, a site built where when you're prepared to go initiate contact with them, you go insert your key into this site and you know a chat window is populated and you're going to be immediately interfacing with the threat actor so that you can communicate with them on ransom amount uh, what they believe they have and start the, the negotiation process
1: do the ransomware operators know that they're dealing with a negotiator when when you're involved is that I mean is that generally part of the process or or not
0: I um, not necessarily I think ideally you know, want them to believe that they are interacting and working with somebody from the organization. Now, that being said, they're fully aware of kind of the brokerage and negotiation services and firms that are, you know, that are providing these types of services. I would be reluctant to say that they don't have awareness or potential familiarity with all of those firms and that they are in, in certain circumstances likely working with a, a negotiator.
1: Where do things stand then today? I mean, in terms of the the advice as to whether or not to pay the ransom. You know, at the outset of of this uh, this ordeal, you know, when it, again when it was ramping up, the FBI said pretty strongly, "Don't pay the ransom. You're supporting a criminal operation. There's no guarantee you're going to get your money back. They might come back to you for more money." You know, there's a whole list of reasons uh, why they recommended not doing that. Again, that's sort of shifted, and it, it seems to me like organizations like the FBI are taking a more, I don't know, prudent, practical, and realistic approach to this. Where do we stand? What, what is the current state of things?
0: So I think that those recommendations still persist. I still do think that the FBI would advocate for people not making ransom payments if it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think you had mentioned, and I, and I believe is occurring is, but there's also some more realistic perspective there and the attempt to potentially ban ransom payments. Again, mm-hmm. I think there's a desire where they don't necessarily want you to pay them. Realistically, there might be situations where customers need to pay them to regain access to data. Again, there are instances where a organization's entire architecture is impacted, uh, aside from access to a couple servers or a, custom, a couple systems, and they don't have access to backups. And the inability to decrypt that data or get access back to that data, it could cause them to potentially even shutter their business. And so I think in those circumstances, I think that they're being more realistic in the sense that there are certain instances where you might need to pay due to kind of the Business requirements of your organization. Now that being said, I think the guidance is to try to avoid that situation and avoid, you know, funding these criminal organizations if that is something that you can avoid, or if you can, you know, get to the same place in the recovery stage um, without having to make that payment.
1: If a ban were put in place, would would that lead to some sort of of black market? Could could organizations? you know, look to, I don't know, you know, offshore organizations who who would be able to serve as a middleman for these sorts of things?
0: I, I believe so. I believe that um, if you attempt to ban ransom payments, there, again, are these instances where an organization can't function without access to their data. And I think in those instances, they're going to find a way to ensure that that ransom payment is made so that they can retrieve their data so that they can get their business operational and functioning again. And so I think by placing a ban in those situations, again, you're driving people towards a market where, um, they are potentially going to do whatever it takes to try to recover that data and, and to, to pay that ransom so that they can recover. I, I think it could lead to, you know, organizations or, or fronted organizations that are potentially even providing those services to customers and maybe not acknowledging that that's what, we're, what they're doing. I mean, there is history of some companies out there who will, you know, decrypt systems for a dollar amount Uh, And they're not necessarily acknowledging that behind the scenes, they're going to these threat actors and they are negotiating terms and getting access to decryption keys for certain systems. And so I think Mm. that, you know, there is the potential for, you know, black market services, fronts for services that are being performed but not acknowledged offshore. Um, But I, I absolutely do think that if you attempted to ban ransom payments, there are certain circumstances where organizations will just say we have to do Uh, pay the ransom anyway, because we need access back to our data.
1: Are you optimistic that we're going to get a better handle on this? How do you think things are going to play out in the future here when it comes to ransomware?
0: It's a great question. I think that, um, I think more people are taking it seriously and we're seeing more and more organizations and clients who are reaching out talking about, you know, ransomware preparedness, uh, which is great to see. It's, You know, I do think we will continue to see threat actors evolve, find new methods to ensure that they are uh, being compensated and receiving monetary gains, you know, through these criminal activities. So I think we'll continue to see evolution of the threat to make sure that they're still receiving ransom payments. But I do think that we are seeing organizations be more and more conscious about ransomware and just the threat in general and trying to prepare and do things you know, and take steps to, to prevent that from happening to them. You know, that being said, again, there's always an evolution of threats. And, and I think that, you know, the threat actors are going to continue to, to try to impact customers and, and, and gain monetary value.
1: What's your recommendation for organizations, you know, if, if they find themselves hit with ransomware, any, any tips for how to best proceed from there, how, how to minimize the, the damage?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one is preparing for it overall, you know, mm-hmm. you have to look at these threat actors and the amount of organizations and, and our clients that they're impacting. And so a lot of times for them to gain access to an environment to, you know, perform the encryption event and, and the ransomware incident, and then eventually receive the ransom payment, the overall level of effort for them is quite minimal. So if you've got more controls in place, more hurdles for them to jump through, and it's going to cause an excessive level of effort, I think for some of your smaller threat groups or for various different threat groups, that might almost steer them away because they've got such a large pool of other, you know, organizations that they can try to go impact. So I think having those preliminary controls and hurdles in place, you know, following standard best practices is huge. Now once you are impacted you know to the point of your question you know what should you do i think some of your immediate steps are one it's great to have an incident response plan in place so you know you know what that escalation path should entail who you should be contacting the different roles and responsibilities that should also include you know engagement of external counsel so that you can get direction on you know, your potential liability disclosure requirements based on your location, region, potential data that has been identified as part of the investigation. You also should obviously work with an incident response service provider, somebody who can perform that investigation so you can fully understand the scope of the incident, how they got in, what did they touch, um, did they steal data? And then so you can develop a remediation framework um, that's going to effectively remove them from the environment as well as, you know, your insurance carrier to determine what type of coverage do you have? Is it going to pay strictly for the services um, to assist with the investigation and response effort? Or do I have coverage for ransom payment in case that is something that might be necessary for us to recover? Um, And then the last thing I would say is just while you're going through this process of, you know, performing your escalations and leveraging your incident response plan in the interim, while you certainly want to take steps to contain the threat and start, you know, working towards recovery, um, you definitely do not want to muddy the water forensically. Uh, forensically, you don't necessarily want to, you know, start rebuilding or re-imaging systems without ensuring that you have copies of those, because we have seen numerous instances where. Customers will start rebuilding, reimaging, and we realize that there is an urgency to restore operationally, but by doing so, they're removing forensic artifacts that are going to allow us to fully understand what that incident scope was and how they got in, what systems they, they did touch, so that we can answer those questions for them on the, the best next steps.
2: All right, ben, what do you think? Oh, that's fascinating stuff. i I do think we've seen this this transition, as Mr. Lance indicated from where we were several years ago, where the advice was obvious. do not pay the ransom, right? We're rewarding bad bad actors that your valuable information might not even be decrypted, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. I think that message uh, is, is, as Mark said in the interview, is still the message. Um, you know, I think that's still better advice than any other potential alternative. I think what what's changed is now we acknowledge the reality of the trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen a bunch of incidents where, you know, you look at the colonial pipeline, perhaps it is easier in some circumstances to pay the ransom. Yeah. Um, I always think about to, you know, think back to Baltimore City. And Granted, we don't have the full suite of information on this. Uh, that would be necessary to make an informed decision. This is all post-hoc, but... You know that was eighteen million dollars in damages and lost revenue, the inability to record real estate transactions, mm-hmm. inability of people to pay water bills. They were asking for ninety thousand dollars in in Bitcoin right. as a ransom payment. <laughs> right. You know sometimes you have to contend with the the reality of that cost benefit analysis, even if you even if there is a moral hazard. You know where you are rewarding bad actors. Mm-hmm. If this is not unique to you know, uh, ransomware per se. It's, hmm. you know, that's... People have paid kidnappers uh, mm-hmm. in movies and in real life. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a terrible thing to have to contend with. But it's... I think this is just... We're starting to recognize the reality that it's not always as simple as never give in, don't pay the ransom.
1: Right, right. There's more nuance than that. For example, there to be an outright federal ban on paying... Ransom payments. The FBI is saying, "Mm, let's not go that far. We're not ready for that yet. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, our thanks to Mark Lance from GuidePoint Security for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. is our show we want to thank all of you for listening the caveat podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies our senior producer is Jennifer Ibin. our executive editor is Peter Kilby I'm Dave Bittner and I'm Ben Yellen thanks for listening